This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Don Winslow's new novel, City on Fire, is the first of a trilogy, and as has been widely reported, this trilogy will be his last. After these and his previous 22 novels, Don has decided to stop writing books and devote his energy to helping candidates who oppose the regressive policies that dominate the Republican Party. He hopes to help them more clearly message those better ideas that are often not expressed as effectively as they should be. His work has been compared to Elmore Leonard, Charles Williford, and Cormac McCarthy. On this edition of The Literary Life, we talk about his influences, the road that led him to writing, and his very difficult decision to continue speaking out to help guide the political discourse to a better place. Don Winslow, welcome to The Literary Life. It's really a pleasure to have you in Books and Books, finally, after all these years. It's been a while. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, you're here uh, with your new book, City on Fire. Um, in just a few minutes, you'll be in the other room. You're going to give a talk. Yeah. And, it, and we'll be discussing things. But um, one of the things that I need to tell you, because I just need to tell you this, you know, at one o'clock in the morning when I'm looking through my Twitter, you're the guy I see. Yeah. And you're the guy I've been following. And I want to thank you for oh. all of that good work that you've been doing over these last few years as well. Yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. You know, I, I think that we've um, we've been at a, a crisis point in democracy for the past five or six years. And I had hoped it was over, you know, and it's not. And so we'll just continue to do this. Well, and what you've done is, you know, kind of miraculous. I mean, you've got over a million followers now, I believe. It's crazy. And uh, and you've been doing these incredible, you know, films, these little short videos that have been, you know, right to the point, like just about no one else that I've been reading or looking at. And you've marshaled, you know, all these creative people to be able to do that. I hope you caught Wallace, the book reviewer. Um, you know, the kid Wallace has been one of my favorite things, a 10-year-old book critic. Yes, yes. Who got yes. grounded by his mom for right. reading this book. Right. So, yeah. So let's start by talking about Sitting on Fire. Yeah. Because that's what you do. You know, I'm, I'm, I've just been so incredibly impressed trying to prepare for this by reading a little bit more about you and understanding all of the different things that you've done in your life, which led up to you being a writer. And one of the things that, I was, that, that came to mind for me was 
you sat there and you wrote and you weren't sure that you were going to get published in that very first book. Yeah. So what kept you going all that time? <laughs> uh, I've wanted to do this since I was a kid. You know, since I was a little kid. I grew up around books. My, my dad was a sailor who was one of the great raconteurs, you know, ever. I used to sit under the table uh, when he'd have his Navy buddies over. They'd pretend to think I wasn't there. You know, I thought I was getting away with something. And uh, I'd listen to these great storytellers tell stories about their adventures all over the world in the Navy. My mom was a librarian in this little New England fishing town. So we always had books, you know, so that's always what I wanted to do. I think, though, you know, in my 20s, probably had a crisis of confidence. You know, um, I was working so hard just to try to pay rents or mortgages or put food on the table. Uh, and I wondered, am I ever going to do this? You know, and then I finally got serious about it again uh, and decided to write five pages a day no matter what. I was in Africa at the time. I was literally around a campfire in Africa because I was leading photographic safaris. So I did five pages a day. Three years later, I thought I had a book. The first 14 publishers disagreed. But what kept me going was um, just stubbornness. You know, I, I had to come to a decision that they were wrong and I was right. And I, I remember I'd read somewhere, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I'd read it, that out of every 10,000 people who put writer down on their tax form as their profession, one makes a living at it. I bet that is true. It sounds about right. Yeah. It does. So I said to myself, I'm sincerely sorry for the other 9,999, but in this life, that's my slot. Maybe not the next one, but this life, that one belongs to me. So I, I just kept plowing, you know? You know, we were talking earlier about a couple of writers. Yeah. One more than the other associated with Miami and South Florida, mm -hmm. Charlie Williford and Elmore Leonard. Yeah. And both of them were writing for a very long time before they really were able to find a great measure of success. Yeah. And I think what is at the root of what kept them going, as you mentioned, it's the idea of this passion, this kind yeah. of need. Yeah. just keep writing. Yeah, both those guys were such huge influences on me. You know, I was reading them long before I was a writer. In fact, I was a, a private investigator. I was on the streets of New York, you know, Hell's Kitchen and, and Times Square, Harlem, South Bronx, uh, doing that kind of low-level street work. And I'd be reading Elmore Leonard and Charles Williford. You know, they were such great inspirations. And my first book was nominated for an Edgar. I've never come close since, by yeah. the way. But uh, and and it was at the old Scribner's bookstore in that beautiful book beautiful bookshop. Remember Fifth Avenue? Yeah, there. yeah. And they had this event, and um, I was seated down with some of the other nominees, and Lawrence Block was to my left. I and and um, Elmore Leonard was up on that balcony, you know. I sat there for two hours. I was too shy to say hello to either of them. And uh, the next day I was in a bookstore, Mysterious Books, and I saw that, that Block was coming in the next day. And so I left money and asked them, could you please get a signed Lawrence Block for me, you know, which I still have. Well, and you know, there are, there are young writers right now who feel that very same thing mm. about you. Uh, I don't know. Because but... your work has influenced so many. And, mm. and as, uh, as I was reading City on, on Fire, 
after reading a whole bunch of other stuff, mm-hmm. I felt like I was coming back home again reading your book because mm-hmm. the the way the propulsive nature of it, but at the same time being so wonderfully it's a kind of clarity of writing and just sort of nuance that was something Dutch Leonard did so well yeah he would go you know instead of going down this road why don't we take the Julia Tuttle causeway yeah instead? exactly and that kind of offhanded dialogue you've yeah got down so wonderfully well thank you I listen I was inspired by him I mean I learned from him you know very late in his life uh, I finally got to talk with him uh, I was living out in Solana Beach, California, north of San Diego, and in this condo, and the uh, the cell phone reception wasn't good in the condo, so I went outside, and it was raining, but it was a California rain, you know, it was warm, gentle right. rains, and um, he got on the phone, and he said, Don Winslow, you were two years old when I wrote 310 to Yuma. <laughs> it was the most charming way of putting me in my place, you know, and and I said, yes, sir, but I tried to read it. And then he laughed, and then he told stories for an hour. Yeah. It was just one of the best hours of my life. I was drenched, you know. It could have gone on forever. He, he I was, was so grateful very, for that. He was a very, very generous, sweet man. I, yeah. You know, we were fortunate in the very early days to be able to get him into the store, as the same with Charlie, who wow. lived in Miami in those early yeah. days. And often they would see one another because they were actually oh, yeah, is that right? friends. Oh, yeah. wow, I had no they idea. They knew each other as huh. well. Place is such a significant part of your books the border trilogy and now this new trilogy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is in providence yeah so talk about how place plays in your work place is a character isn't it because everyone comes from somewhere i i don't think we can ever separate our characters from where they grew up or where they live i frankly fall in love with places i just fall in love with them you know, the first time I, I, I went out to California as a PI to do arson cases. And uh, I had a, a freak day off. And I drove out to the Pacific Coast Highway and I was in love. Now, I've driven that damn thing a thousand times. I'm excited every time I do it. Every time I go, right, I'm excited. It has what I call the small gods of place. You know, that surf shop, that beach break, that taco place you know uh, and so with this book you know i left rhode island when i was 17 because there wasn't anything there for me and uh yeah i'd go back for visits as one does but i really started going back about i don't know nine ten years ago with my wife to help take care of my aging mother who was in her declining years and be in the same house that i grew up in same house where these books were written i had right on the front porch because I start work at 5.30 in the morning and I didn't want to wake people up. So I'd, I'd oh, sneak wow. down into the kitchen and make a quick cup of coffee. And then I'd go out on the porch with my laptop and sit on an old futon in a coffee table and write so I didn't disturb and people. And what, what city in, in Rhode Island? South Kingstown, Rhode South Island. Kingstown. A little area called Matunic, which, you know, no reason anyone How far should from know. Providence? Uh, 30 miles. Yeah. Yeah, it all, you know, basically fishing and beaches and that was it, you know, uh, and the economy was based on fishing, which, you know, was being played out. There were a couple of factories in the little town, but they had moved south. So the town basically had in 10 weeks of summer, you know, with beach people, you can't right. see the air quotes, but beach people to make money. 
in Labor Day, the day after Labor Day, is like they flipped a switch, you know. Did you grow up with that love of water as well? Yes. Yeah. My old man had me in the in the waves when I was four. I I'm more comfortable in water than I am on land. I I'm really clumsy. But there was a woman I dated one time who said I walked like a broken duck. <laughs> I, I don't know how you break a duck. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't exactly. know exactly what that means, but it's strangely accurate, you know. <laughs> And uh, I'm much more comfortable in the water. Yeah, yeah. And the beach, you know, that a lot of this book, well, the book begins. And yeah, you open it, it starts right in a beach. The yeah. whole thing is around water, the beach, yeah. boats. Yeah, because... Restaurants on the beach. For a couple of reasons. I mean, one, I just wanted to, right? Uh, I'm on that beach every day, six months of the year. It's It's the beach that I walked on after my dad's funeral. You know, and also after my mom died, which was during COVID, so we couldn't be there. But months later, you know. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, uh, the book is is inspired by the Iliad. It's the same exact right. story. And if you read the Iliad, which I've done now like 50 times, uh, 90% of it takes place on the beach because it's basically an amphibious assault. Right, 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 right. right. So how did, that, how did that come to you, the idea of taking the, a classic like the Iliad and merging it with a crime story, basically. Yeah, back in the 90s, um, I came to the conclusion that I was really ignorant. Um, I had a, uh, a BA in African history and an MA in military history. I know. It's, when I read that, it's pretty yeah. remarkable. And I was in this highly specialized program where they didn't make you take anything else. You, you didn't take liberal arts courses. You didn't take anything like that. You, Did you, you want to go in the foreign service? Uh, that, that, part of it? that was one avenue. But, um, and I was headed there to be an expert on African military affairs. Uh, but it was the Reagan years. And I didn't want to do it. So uh, a buddy of mine had this, um, he just started this little photographic safari firm. And um, he had grown to the point where he needed a number two. Uh, I spoke the languages and I, I had enough of the Bush skills to, you know, bring eight people in and bring eight people out. <laughs> By the way, they had to be the same eight people. They were rather strict about that. I would you, imagine. you couldn't just, you know. <laughs> couldn't just. Yeah, hey, you. In. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, and so I went and did that. Um, so in the 90s, to answer the question you actually asked, um, I thought... I got one of those great books lists, you know, there are dozens of them, and um, and I thought, I'm going to read the whole thing. It's sort of autodidactic, Jude the Obscure kind of effort. And so I did, you know, it took me seven years. But early on, I hit, of course, the Greek classics. And I was so struck by the parallels between the stories and the characters and the themes of those classics and what I knew of both modern crime reality and contemporary crime mm. fiction. All the things that we treat in my beloved crime genre, yeah, uh, they'd already done. Look, I, I hope that people can read these books, because it's a trilogy, uh, with no knowledge of or reference to the classics at all. You can read them just as straight-out oh, crime easily. novels. easily, you know. Uh, but if you do have some nodding acquaintance with the classics. Or if you want to go and you want to read yeah. it again. Yeah. It would be a terrific yeah. spur to want to do that. Yeah. You know, you go, ooh, I, maybe that's Helen of Troy, you know, or is that the Trojan horse or, you know. So, yeah. 
when when you were when you were writing uh, when you were writing this, was this based on anything that you had heard about mm-hmm. when you were growing up? Oh, sure. This kind of fight between the two families. Oh, no, absolutely, absolutely. I grew up in the era of the New England crime wars. Right. It was a constant. It, it was like baseball. I mean, you you know, you, you open the paper in the morning to see how the Red Sox did, and to see who'd been murdered. Wow. I was in a restaurant on on Federal Hill, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, I was 14 and uh, had lunch there with a friend and left. And two hours later, two guys were gunned down right there. Wow. So, you know, I wasn't directly involved in the mob. My no, family you, were not mobbed up, but it was always around. Was it the Irish and the yeah. Italians? It was the Irish and Italians. There were various, you know, right. manifestations of this, you know, everybody versus everybody. It, you know how it works but yeah so these characters in this book i've known all my life interesting also how you you layered in the beginnings it seems like of the drug trade in yeah that area as well yeah i needed a trojan horse right you you can't roll a, a wooden horse full of you know mafioso into south providence in 1987 it's a stupid so uh, it took me a long time to think, what would the Trojan horse be? What would be so tempting that people would bring it in right. to their own destruction? And then I remembered that the nickname for heroin in 1980s on the East Coast was horse. Now, bing. You got it. There we are. And, you know, you talk about, you know, the guy who's bringing it in yeah. from actually from Florida, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Miami is seen through sure. Williford and everyone else that was writing around that time yeah. as a place where crime fiction thrives. Absolutely, absolutely. It's one of, the, one of the great, I think the three great centers of American crime fiction, you know, would be California, you know, yeah. the, uh, probably New York and, and Miami. So while you were, you know, while you were doing all these things in, in Africa as a private yeah. investigator, who were some of the people you were reading? Oh, man. Mr. Leonard, you know, um, every word, you know. It was funny, though, I couldn't afford books, right? I, I remember going into a bookstore in New York that was near my apartment, and I'd go in there about every day, and they specialized in crime fiction, and I'm just looking at those shelves. And and, um, and finally, the woman threw me out and said, you, you know, you, you can't just be in here yeah. looking. 20 years later... I did a book signing at that bookstore. bookstore. I didn't say a word. (laughs) I didn't say a word about it. That's really great. But yeah, I I I was self educating myself, and you know, uh, reading Lawrence Block because he wrote that Matt Scudder series, and I was a PI in Hell's Kitchen. Right, I was chasing runaways, trying to get them before the pimps did in Hell's Kitchen, Uh, and so I was reading Matt Scudder and very much relating to it. You know, that was my neighborhood. So through all of this, you know, you're now making a transition. It's been all over the news that you're saying that this is going to be your last series, that you're giving it up to work in the political field that we've talked about a little bit earlier where, you know, Twitter was something you've been doing. But I've been seeing you so articulately express yourself on MSNBC and wherever else you've been talking when you've been an amazing spokesperson. So... Was that always a part of your life, politics? No. I, um, I, it, people do not believe this. I still don't think I'm a political person. Uh, I was never interested in it. But writing the kinds of stuff that I wrote, particularly when I started to write this drug trilogy, 
you know, about the war on drugs in Mexico and the war on drugs and immigration and addiction and all of that, you couldn't help but get political because the more I researched, the angrier that I got. And so right. those books have a political content. But uh, I forget what year it was. Uh, a book called The Cartel came out. Right. Um, which was the middle book of that trilogy. And I took out a full-page ad in the Washington Post uh, to President Obama and to Congress uh, advocating an end to the war on drugs, basically uh, you know, advocating legalization of all drugs. That was sort of the start of the political stuff because I felt that um, if I didn't do or try to do something, uh, I was just another guy making money off dope. Hmm. So interesting. You know, I was part of the cartel, right? right? Yeah, wow. Uh, and you knew that area so well. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean... 23 years on that beat. 23 years on the beat. You know, as you say, you used to walk... I, I think I saw something somewhere where you you took a reporter to the to the... To, to where a wall would have to be built. Yeah. It would have to be like a skyscraper high right. wall. If, but yeah. then you mentioned something so interesting about how, you know, there are doors everywhere. Everywhere. What's the point of having a wall when you've got 15 gates? Right. Um, the gates are open 24-7 because there's, of course, you know, massive commerce between Mexico and the United States. Both economies would collapse without it. So, for instance, in the El Paso crossing... Uh, a tractor trailer truck goes through every 15 seconds. Uh, 97% of the drugs that come up from Mexico go in those tractor trailer trucks in one of those crossings. There's no way to stop it. Those aren't my figures, by the way. Those are DEA yeah. figures in their threat assessment reports that they do every year. So, yeah, the, the idea of a wall was such a, a cruel lie when you're telling it to the parents of kids who've overdosed and you're saying you're going to fix this by by building a wall. Yeah, so maybe you know being political is the wrong way of putting it. I think that that when I hear you talk and when I read what you what you write and I hear how you express those people standing on the border, waiting on the border, mm -hmm. waiting to figure out a way to get in. There's a kind of empathy that does not mm -hmm. really you know there are many people on the other side don't have that empathy or don't express that empathy. But that's what novels are supposed to do, I think. I think that that's our strength over journalism sometimes. You know, every headline becomes a stereotype eventually, right? Illegal immigration, a term I object to because I don't think any human being should be labeled as illegal. Right. No human being's illegal, but that's a headline. But if I can get a reader to spend, you know, hours and hours and hours with a 10-year-old boy coming up on a train from Central America, they can't help but see it differently because I have the liberty to create interior lives for that, those people, right? I can get you into that kid's thoughts and into his feelings and into his experience. Um, the opioid epidemic, it's a headline that becomes a stereotype. But if I can get you to spend, again, those same number of hours in a book with a, a woman, 26-year-old woman addicted to heroin, you are going to see it differently. And I think that that's the great power of fiction. It is. You've now taken it into 
into a realm of public discourse as well. Mm-hmm. So you're not just speaking through your fiction. So when I when I hear you interviewed about about people on the border, you point out that most of those people are really good, solid people. Oh, there absolutely. are bad people everywhere. Yeah. I think you even said at one point, look, there were bad people on the Mayflower. Yeah. There were bad people who came in through Ellis Island, right? Right. I, I, one of my ancestors was on the Mayflower, and I think a bad person. <laughs> you know, so I know yeah, this I, from... I think I had a few of those, too. From probably. DNA. Yeah, look, you know, I, uh, I live quite close to the border, you know, and have for 30 years. Uh, those are my friends and my neighbors. Those are the people that I go to birthday parties with and high school graduations and weddings and funerals. Those are right. people that I love. And and so when I hear these politicians, you know... It's despicable. Branding them as murderers and thieves. And, and they're using it only for their political gain. Absolutely. That's the only reason, why That's the only reason that they do it. Yeah. yeah. We, we lived through that here when there was the Mario Boatlift here. You know, the right, whole thing of course, that, and yeah. then it got played out as Scarface, right? right? And you know, ninety-nine point nine percent of everyone who came through were remarkable people. Of and course, I know their sons and daughters now. Exactly, who are that age, exactly, who are phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, the you know, the statistics are that that immigrants have one fifth the crime rate as native-born Americans. You know, if we, we sort of forget that all of us are really from somewhere else. Right. You know, and, and the whole thing in Ukraine has pointed it out to me because mm-hmm. I've always heard my whole life that my grandfather came from Lvov, which hmm. is Lviv. Sure, Lviv. Yeah. And I never really gave it any thought. Yeah. But, you know, that was only two generations. Right. You know, you said something which really struck me. I saw it in an interview or yeah. something. And... And you talked about, I think you were talking about the border trilogy, but it could talk, it could be really about where we are now Mm -hmm. as a country. And I'm wondering what you think about this. You said, you know, it's about internal borders, about Mm -hmm. ethical borders, moral borders, political borders, and whether we cross them or not. And if we do cross them, can we ever cross back? Yeah. And we seem to be at that place right now. We are. I think we very much are. You know, I, I felt that so strongly last November, you know, the November of the election of, of 2020, that we were absolutely at that border. And that if we crossed it over into the sort of shoddy fascism that the Trumpists represent, that we might never get back. Uh, people called me an alarmist and a fantasist. And then January 6th happened. And you, you saw a putsch, a fascist effort to seize a democratic government play out right in front of you, you know. Uh, and nothing is happening. There have been no consequences. There's None. been not a, a single Republican lawmaker involved in that subpoenaed. And let me, let me, and I'm going to go on a front of rant, but stop me. I don't want to stop you. What, <laughs> go. Why are we issuing, issuing invitations and not subpoenas? What the hell is that? Yeah, invitations are to high school graduations and birthday parties. You know, rehearsal dinners. I, 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 we all saw it on TV. Absolutely. We have an hour-long tape of the guy trying to suborn votes in Georgia, but we're issuing invitations. I, I don't, I don't get it. We're having uh, quote courtesy meetings end quote. What's a courtesy meeting? I don't even know what that is. And and what we ought to be doing is issuing subpoenas, putting these people under oath, and letting them take the fifth if they want 
on television in front of the whole country. But you just saw what happened. Rudy Giuliani went, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm not going to come. Right. right? Whereas Rudy Giuliani's federal district would have slapped a subpoena on his ass, pardon me, and brought him in and said, no, we're not inviting you. You're going to sit down and you're either going to answer questions or you're going to refuse to answer questions and we'll all see it. That was the power of what happened during Watergate. That's exactly it. When the whole country was riveted and we saw for ourselves what was happening. But if you compare what Nixon did in Watergate to what Trump did on January 6th, you're talking a misdemeanor versus a felony murder. And let's not, not forget, while I'm on a rant, that five people died that day. What, what, what is your take on what happened in, in New York City and why that that investigation seems to have no. been shut down a little bit? Well, someone got scared, huh? Is that what it was? I think so. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have insider information on that. But that sure is what it looked like. Because Morgan, Morgan Dollar yeah. seemed to be going in a direction yeah. that immediately stopped. Stopped. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> you know. As a crime writer, as someone, right. as someone who can take your characters and you can really, you can off them, you can, you can put them through hell. This right. must be terribly frustrating. It is. When, when you can't. You know, it's the way, you know, I think, yeah. you know, you probably feel as I do that there's nothing worse in life than the bully, right? Right. And when the bully doesn't get, there's yeah. no consequences for the bully, yeah. it's terribly frustrating. But that's why... It's so important that we speak out. That's what I'm trying to do with these tweets and we're trying to do with these videos. I've said it before. These guys are classic bullies. They're so tough. Say anything, do anything until someone punches them in the nose. And then what do they do? They go sobbing to teacher, you know, nose running and, you know, the media is mean to me. They were mean to me. We need to keep punching them in the nose. You know, uh, I was so pleased to see that state senator McMorrow. They, they accused her of grooming children, right? Right from molestation. She punched him in the nose. Yeah. And what happened? They back right off. See, to most of these people, they're physical as well as moral cowards. And the problem I have with with the Democratic Party right now is we we bring spoons to a knife fight. We don't we don't want to go in the alley. You know, well, particularly when what seems to be so much at stake is our very democracy, right? Given some of the state laws that are coming down yeah. in terms of voting, yeah, restrictions voting rights, yeah. and changing who can certify an election, right. and that sort of thing. We need to claim some of this back. We've ceded far too much. If if you go out on the street here and you see a pickup truck with a big American flag in the back. You know who that is. But that's my flag too, right? I can take you to the exact spot where my great-great-grandfather died fighting to end slavery. My dad was 18 on Guadalcanal, right? So our side has blood and soil in this as well. And we need to take that back and we need not to be shy about it. We have ceded the concept of patriotism to them. When I, I can't think of anything more anti-patriotic than storming the Capitol with the picture of a wannabe dictator emblazoned on the American flag. Sorry, we're patriots too. We've ceded the idea of morality to them, right? We let them talk and talk about morality. But what about 
our values? What about our morals? You know, uh, and and I think we've been a little too shy about standing up for them, you know, and saying, well, hold on a second. Now, as I said, my family came over on the Mayflower, right? Not natives, but very early immigrants. I have a right to that flag, but I also think that that immigrant who came up from Central America has just as much right to that flag as I do. Certainly these guys, you know, driving around in pickup trucks, right? And I, I just wish we were tougher about that. Have you got some plans and strategies that you think you're sure, going to work on? Sure, sure. I mean, one thing, we keep doing what I've been doing. Uh, we are uh, looking at forming kind of rapid response teams. Uh, we've had so many people volunteer you know, since I made this announcement that I was retiring and, and that we're going to form a digital army. You know, and when I go to these events every night, people are giving me their cards and their contact information. Uh, so a rapid response team to respond to these sort of scurrilous lies and scurrilous attacks quickly, quick and hard, right? Punch them in the mouth. Uh, and then we'll continue to do these videos. Of course, some of this, by the nature of things, has to be responsive because you're responding to the news. What are you hopeful about? I'm hopeful. Well, first of all, we won. I think it's going to be a tough fight. I think this guy's going to run again, and I think we're going to have to beat him again. But I think we will beat him again because we have no choice. You know, when you consider optimism versus pessimism, if those are binary choices, because I think we all fade in and out of those attitudes. I, I can go to a dark place in a heartbeat. Pessimism is not a choice. Because what do you do? What do you do? do you, no, you can't be frozen. You yeah, you to. can't curl up on the couch right. and wait for the end of the world. We we can't just, you know, go off somewhere and, and, and cede our country to fascists and thugs, which is what they are. And again, we need to speak in this language unapologetically. Um, so, hopeful. Uh, hopeful of a, a younger generation coming up. Uh, I am hopeful because of the kinds of things that that, that McMorrow said, and, and I think there's a there's a hunger for that. There's an appetite for that out there, uh, and I'm seeing it increasingly, where people are saying, "Let's let's stand our ground, and and speak up, you know, and, and defend our values and attack um, what we see as wrongs." Yeah, I think the what the last election showed us is that a majority of people really feel like democracy is something to be cherished. Mm -hmm. It's just that we have this very strange, our institutions have gotten a little bit, war, a lot warped yeah. because, you know, you have a Congress and you have a Senate that doesn't completely reflect right. what people yeah. feel in right. general. No. So if you take, you know, the fact that you have, you know, two senators, you know, who are, you know, representing the entire state of California with millions and millions yeah. of people. You've got four senators in the Dakotas. Right. Basically. Right. Yeah. It's a little it's bit warped. It's a little bit warped. Though. It is. It's not fair. But but it's what we got right now. And so, you know, um, you fight the battle where the battle is. Don, would you read a little something? Oh, well, Maybe. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I will. All of the problems started a clam bake that Pasco Ferry, the Italian godfather, holds every year for the Italians and the Irish. This is when they're friends. And if, if it's okay, I'd like to read a little bit 
from the uh, the clam bake is seen through Danny's eyes. Would Danny love that. Ryan's eyes. Is that all right? Christ, the food, Danny thinks. The clams, the quahogs, the crabs, the huge pots of spaghetti and gravy, stuffed peppers, and sweet Italian sausage. The joke is that the Irish are never, ever allowed to cook, but one time Martin wrapped a potato in tinfoil and had Danny secretly bury it in the coals, and when Pasco dug the clams out, he found that spud and yelled, Marty, you old Mick. God, how they eat. The food never stops. After the shellfish and the pasta, the sausage and the peppers, the women bring out big boxes of the sweet little Italian cookies from Cantonella's bakery in Knightsville. Only Cantonella's cookies will do. Someone was always designated to stop in Cranston on the way down from the city and pick up those cookies. Someone brings out a mandolin and is playing while Pasco sings a sweet, sad ballad in Italian. His voice comes out of the fog like it drifted across the Atlantic from Napoli, an old song from an old country that washes up on this new world shore like driftwood. Pasco finishes the song and it's very quiet. He says, your turn, Marty. Nah, Marty says, it's a ritual. Marty demurs, Pasco insists, and Marty lets himself be persuaded into singing. While this goes on, the three come back from the bathroom. They sit down together. Leon comes to the opposite side of the fire and plops down next to Danny and Terry. Then Marty sings, the parting glass in his quavering voice. Of all the money e'er I had, I spent it in good company. And all the harm I've ever done, alas, it was to none but me. And all I've done for want of wit, to memory now I can't recall. So fill to me the parting glass. Good night, and joy be with you all. City on Fire is just so incredibly, wonderfully done. I can't Thank wait. Uh, Are the next two going to come out yeah, in the year, next two years? Yeah, a year and a year. Yeah, I just can't yeah. wait for the next yeah. Uh, yeah. two in the trilogy. And I am... So, you know, what's hopeful for me is that there are people like you whose voices... Uh, you know, who've got these very large platforms who are going to be speaking on behalf of all of us. And I can't thank you enough. Well, yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. And 